Right, time for another exciting episode of the podcast. Looks like I'm going to be right on time. Good thing we managed to book a studio for this recording. Last week's sound quality was a bit rubbish. Right, now, just need to enter the passcode. Well, well maybe I entered it wrong. Let's try the end. 4242. Hmm. Well, maybe I should try knocking. I can see him in there. Hold on, that, that, that's not David Farrier in there, is it? Uh, David! David! M? M! Ah, uh, bloody soundproofing. Hold on, is that someone trying to get in? Oh, no, just ignore him. Look, I really want to talk to you about my documentary idea. It's called Dark Floridas, because it's all about fluoride conspiracy theories. Oh, God, no. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, they are Dr. M. Dentith. We are in New Zealand in varying degrees of COVID-19 lockdown, but, but it's all fine. We're all happy. I'm happy. Are you happy? I'm, I'm, I am content. Happiness you're, you're content. is... Yeah. Yes, content will do. Uh, I've been. It's been a very busy week because I've written two editorials on conspiracy theories. One of which is about COVID nineteen conspiracy theories in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm involved in a think tank which is writing a briefing paper on how we respond to COVID nineteen disinformation and conspiracy theories in the build up to the election. So that's taken a lot of time out of things. So I am content to be content. In fact, I might even be happy to be content. I'd be even happier to be happy. I guess that makes sense, yes. But happiness is for the future. Happiness mm. is for the end of this week. Mm. Now, um, <clears throat> speaking of the end, it's the end of the month, uh, and usually at the end of the month we have a new news episode, but we're not going to do that this week, although we are a little bit, but kind of, but differently, but we'll get to that. Um, but instead we have something much more important and exciting than a news uh, episode, which is, as we mentioned last week, uh, an interview with David Farrier. Actually, I don't think we mentioned it to everyone last week. Did we? I think was we it only, only the patron, the patrons, did only the patrons yeah. get it? Well, if you didn't hear it last week, you're hearing it now. Em has interviewed David Farrier, and we're going to play that interview. Um, is there anything we need to say beforehand? Don't no. think so. Very well, then. Uh, interview between Dr. M. Dentith and David Farrier commencing now. So this week we're talking with David Farrier, who you may know if you've been listening to this podcast for quite some time from his work with Dylan Reeve on Tickled and, of course, his work on the series Dark Tourist. David has recently started, so it's what you, would you call it a, an email list, David, your webworm? Yeah, I would call webworm a newsletter, an email newsletter, or sometimes I like to call it spam. I mean, it's a quite old-fashioned <laughs> way of communicating with people, and yet it's also quite an intimate way of doing it as well. Where did you come up with the idea of doing webworm? Uh, I was talking to my friend Hamish, who... He, he runs Substack, which is this thing that the, basically the infrastructure that runs a newsletter. And I was talking to him over lockdown when I just had a documentary turned down for funding. And he sort of said, like, why don't you just 
you know, instead of writing long Twitter threads and Instagram posts and Facebook posts, why don't you gather your thoughts into one place? You can send it out in a newsletter form to the like the small group of people that follow your stuff. And I just started trying and, and I really enjoyed it. I love the format. I love that you're communicating with a small, dedicated group. And then I also like that if people want to share it, they can. And then it goes wider. Uh, so it's it's a really... I was skeptical when I started, but at the moment I'm loving it the most out of all the things I'm trying to make and do. Now, of course, the reason why we're talking about Webworm is that you've been taking quite a hard look at conspiracy theories both locally and internationally with your newsletter, haven't you? Yeah, I have, and I'm I'm probably doing it from a different angle to you where I'm kind of from the perspective of someone who is on social media a lot and is reading a lot and is quite alarmed by what they're seeing. And I feel like while you take quite a measured approach to things, I probably take more of a sort of a what the fuck is happening here kind of look at things. And I don't know, I guess I try and give it a twist and I try and talk to the people behind certain ideas and certain things and get a lot of discussion going. And I suppose... You know, I I became engaged with this when during the first lockdown in New Zealand when there was a lot of debate about 5G and then we saw people, a very small number of people, um, being alarmed and some, you know, going out and starting fires and that kind of thing. And I was really curious how that combined with the COVID sort of conspiracy worries. And since then, I've just sort of been writing about it and haven't stopped. I mean, it's interesting. You kind of talk about how I take a more measured approach and you're taking a much more direct approach. One of the things which I've found really interesting about writing about conspiracy theories during the pandemic, particularly COVID-19 conspiracy theories, is that Mm. it doesn't seem like it's such an academic matter now when you see that even if only a few people believe these theories, it leads to them engaging in behaviors which increase the risk to the rest of us. Absolutely. And I think it's funny. I think you, you, we're all operating in a world that's very different to what it was, I think, post-COVID. And, you know, I was talking with Dylan um, the other day and, you know, we were sort of pitching this idea um, years ago. And, well, it was his idea uh, about... Um, you know, the idea of false flags and crisis actors. And back then when we were talking to people about this, all, all these concepts and even the concept of something like a crisis actor, you know, someone who uh, is faking uh, something terrible uh, because they are driving some sort of agenda, um, no one knew what we were talking about. And, you know, it was really hard to pitch something when no one sort of grasps what you're talking about. And yet here we are. And this is just common kind of language and everyone's talking about this thing that used to feel much more um, niche. So I find that kind of fascinating. Yes, and I know you've just recently spoken with Joe Yusinski, the political scientist from Mm. the University of Miami. And in his 2014 book, he does make the claim that actually the height of conspiracy theory in politics was basically back in the 1960s. And things have been kind of diminishing conspiracy theory-wise ever since. But it does seem that in the last few years, there has been 
a sudden reversal, because you're right. The kind of things that I was studying for my PhD, which was submitted back in the in the in the pre-Trump days of 2012, <laughs> people went, "Well, why would you study those things? No one cares about conspiracy theories." And now people are going, "Oh my God, conspiracy theories are the worst things. They're destroying the body politics. What can we do about mm. them?" It feels really, really different, and it seems to have come on really quickly. Yeah, it, it it does, and it's funny because uh, I'm I'm releasing my conversation with Joe um, uh, shortly, but he, you know, he was telling me throughout the entire conversation that everything uh, about conspiracy theory culture is being blown out of proportion at the moment by the media, and that you know he's done all this polling, he's seen no great increase in people who uh, believe in QAnon. Uh, beliefs or he hasn't seen any increase in belief in conspiracy theory at all and you know this man he knows a lot more than I do he's got a lot more data in front of him uh, certainly from the United States but it doesn't line up with the experience I have which is looking at people on my Facebook timeline who I'm pretty convinced may obviously were susceptible to this stuff but I don't think they would be in this situation if they weren't uh, online and weren't on social media. And I do feel like there is a real resurgence in it. Uh, that is a very real thing. And I don't quite know how we're meant to talk about that and how we're meant to combat that because, you know, I was just looking at some protests that were taking place in Los Angeles over the weekend, 200 people out there, um, Q t-shirts, Q signs, save the children, you know, that wasn't happening when I was in Los Angeles a year and a half ago. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, it feels like a new surge in things, and I, I'm really alarmed by that. I mean, I do wonder with the polling respect, whether A, polling is kind of lagging what's happening in culture. So maybe the, peop may maybe the way we poll things indicates how people used to believe as opposed to what people are currently or going to believe. And also whether we've got the kind of issue we've seen with polling around elections, that due to the way that many people have their lives online now, but a reliance on using, say, phones and the like for doing traditional polling, maybe we're simply not asking the right people. Which is why I think the election here is going to be so interesting, because the poll of polls, as we talk about election day, is the one that gives us the best clear-cut indication of where things are going politically. And we've seen quite a number of conspiracy theory-centric parties in our country pop up in the last few months, haven't we? Yeah, and, and that's happened really quickly. I mean, the, the public party here, I mean, Billy TK Jr. was not talking about um, any of this conspiracy stuff pre the first lock-in. Like, you just look at his Facebook page back in April and things were just morphing and changing to the point now where he's, you know, he started this party, he's got Jamie Lee Ross on board. And I think their Facebook page has got more followers than the ACT Party, which has been around a lot longer. Um, you know, and the public party they are having a large number of people turning up at their public meetings as they travel around the country. And you read the comments on any of uh, the public party's posts or just Billy TK Jr.'s personal page, the comments under his posts. And shit, man, there are a lot of people believing some pretty crazy 
stuff right now and it is it's it's stuff that is unhinged and it has no basis in reality and it's all stuff that we're seeing being propagated on these facebook pages and groups of people that are genuinely sort of seem to be into this whole q movement so it's yeah it's kind of alarming how quickly it's gotten to new zealand i think so tell me about what was your precipitating event for being so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use what may for some people be a pejorative term your zealous approach towards talking about conspiracy theories what was it that made you go I need to write about this uh I I mean the first thing was when I saw that uh I joined an anti 5G group uh on Facebook <laughs> and you know I I was in a 5G commercial a couple of years ago um, because, you know, surprise, surprise, when you work in documentary, you're not making a lot of money. So, you know, that commercial was like, okay, I do this thing. I'm like, 5G is great. Bring it on. I'm into it. I'll do it. Uh, and so I did this commercial. And then about maybe six months after that, I'd gone to see a movie out of Avondale uh, at the cinema out there, the Hollywood, and someone just came up to me out of the blue and tapped me on the shoulder and started I would use the word raving. Like they really did start raving to me about uh, a number of things from how 5G is incredibly dangerous and they couldn't believe what's sold out. Then they got onto 1080 stuff and then they got onto New World Order stuff. And I sort of thought, oh, like, God, what is going on? So I signed up for a number of Facebook groups, actually, like anti 5G groups. And I was just incredibly alarmed by the volume of posts in there and also just the number of members and what they were saying. And, you know, these are all people in New Zealand. They were all people that were alarmed. And as I read that stuff, I saw that they were just buying straight into all the Q rhetoric from uh, American uh, websites and Facebook pages. And I was, I just, I just sort of thought, God, like we've got to start fighting back against this with some kind of logic. And so I wrote some stuff for the spinoff and then, when I saw, you know, like people like Chef Pete Evans going down this rabbit hole and and a number of people in New Zealand that I knew going down, I just thought, oh God, like and I and that's when I just started typing and typing and typing and essentially ranting in the form of uh Webram, this this newsletter thing I'm doing. I mean, it's quite interesting the I'm gonna work out the the best way to phrase this question. Mm. You so you are you're not just New Zealand famous due to your work with Dark Tourist and the like. You do have a certain international recognition as well, which means that you're the kind of person who can be easily spotted on the street and thus be easily associated with the things you've done. So doing a 5G commercial mm. makes you a kind of prime target for people who are going, why did you take that commercial? Do you know something? Are you being are you being paid by George Soros to promote 5G? Do you want me to get COVID-19? Which is quite different from, say, my work, where I write about things, but I'm 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 completely anonymous on the street. I can go shopping to my heart's content, and people have no idea one of the world's leading conspiracy theory theorists is in their supermarket buying their fake ham. <laughs> so you end up being a kind of perfect target for people to talk to, and that must be really confronting in the first instance it occurs, because if you're not ready to debate these conspiracy theories, what do you do? Mm. And I suppose that's why, I mean, that's a big part of what I wanted to start thinking about with my writing was how do you talk to people that are ranting and raving at you about 
stuff that is it's difficult to debate because it's not it's not paired with the reality that you know and that you are sure of and so yeah i mean just to address your point i guess it is i'm very used to being a target for i mean right back when i was on nightline interviewing bands and stuff like i'd get people like hurling sort of various online abuse at me and and i'm so i'm very used to like i don't take that any of that personally and i'm very lucky and it hasn't crossed over really into my real life i haven't had people you know doxing me or, or any of those sort of experiences although the q crowd has definitely found their way into various bits of my social media and really given me a pretty a pretty difficult <laughs> difficult time at times but you can shrug it all off it's not real life um and in new zealand fortunately we are fairly polite and people aren't rocking up to me too much um outside the cinema but that that public facing thing definitely does make you a bit more of a target and it's you know i wanted to start thinking about how you have those conversations and i had this i, I was sort of thrilled that there's this guy mick west he uh, do you know mick west he he um is a conspiracy theory uh debater essentially an apologist i i know of his work yeah 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 so he, he created um tony hawk pro skater um and a bunch of video games made a shit ton of money retired and then just started debunking conspiracy theories full time and he's got this book escaping the rabbit hole which i really loved and it's basically about how you start to talk to people um, that believe these things uh, in a reasonable way because like your knee-jerk reaction or it was certainly mine is just to sort of go oh that's so stupid like don't be so dumb but that's gonna get you nowhere and it's also kind of sort of an arrogant approach in a way we start calling anybody stupid uh, and so I wanted to sort of talk to Mick about this stuff and he had a bunch of techniques and, and part of it is sort of putting all your cards on the table with people and saying and finding out where your common ground is. And, you know, if I was talking to someone that was raving to me about George Soros and, and children and underground tunnels, you know, I wouldn't say I, I, I absolutely, you know, conspiracy theory, some of them are very real. I have no doubt about that. And, you know, I talk a bit about maybe nine eleven and how I, you know, I think that, you know, God, potentially it was a pretty good excuse to invade another country and sort of put all your cards on the table so you're not just calling them idiots. And then another thing he explained to me was this idea, he calls it steel manning, which is sort of opposite of a straw man argument where you go out and you learn their conspiracy theory even better than they know it. And then you explain it back to them in even greater detail. The idea being that they'll respect you, hopefully, that you sort of know what you're talking about. And maybe in explaining it back to them, uh, in such a complex way, they might start to clock that it sounds a bit silly. Uh, so I know I, I'm on a tangent here, but I really like McWest's approach to talking to people um, about this stuff. And I mean, steel manning is a really great idea. Although, of course, the problem is if you want to learn the basics of even just a few conspiracy theories, you are going to be <laughs> spending an awful lot of time down the rabbit hole. Easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, people talk about the glory days of of conspiracy theories when basically it was just based, it was JFK conspiracy theories and Elvis conspiracy theories, with the JFK <laughs> ones being much more important apparently than the King of Ro Rock and Roll's mysterious death on a toilet. I mean, who believes that story? 
But these days, you want to be talking about conspiracy theories. You need to know the ins and outs of your 9-11s, your 5Gs, the underground tunnels that are apparently littering the entire world. And even getting to grips with 9-11 is difficult because then you're going, <laughs> which 9-11 conspiracy theory? Are we talking about the hologrammatic planes? Are we talking about the <laughs> bombs put in the Twin Towers? Are we talking about the let it happen on purpose hypothesis? Are we going to say it did happen, but the conspiracy theory is what happened afterwards? I mean, I mean, yeah. where, where, where does one start? Yeah, and you've also got this. You've also got this other problem, I think, where if you're someone like me who is associated with the mass media in some way, because you know I've worked at TV three for about ten years, um, I've worked with Netflix. Um, then the second I start debating any of this stuff, like I'm, of course, I'm part of the global elite, and of course, I'm part of the media that would be disavowing this stuff. So I'm in an even worse position to start debating any of these things. And you know, I. I don't think I've successfully talked anyone around yet. You know, it's I've I've had debates online with people about this stuff, and I feel that when you're down, and you have that worldview, and you feel like you have the information that no one else has, and that you've got this kind of elite knowledge, that's really appealing. It's like finding a new religion. It's like gives you all the answers, and that's a really, that's a really good feeling, and it's not something you're going to readily let go of, and so. You know, what I'm sort of thinking about at the moment is almost like how damaging is this? Like if you've, you know, I've got a friend and they're into this stuff, like what damage is it doing? Or do I just, at what point do I just turn off Twitter and Facebook and just stop caring about this stuff? Because it can get you like incredibly wound up. And my answer to that at the moment is like, I feel like we should care because when it's a conspiracy based around the idea that COVID-19 is nothing more than the flu or the government is lying to us. I think that has real, real world health consequences. And I think we do need to keep, oh, you know, engaging with this stuff. But, but at the same time, it can feel pretty hopeless, right? Well, yes. I mean, as you point out, it, you, you very rarely ever have a conversation where you change someone's mind. And I mean, <laughs> no. and there's quite a lot of literature on conversion techniques. So people looking at, say, for example, how long does it take to make someone ditch creationism or intelligent design? And mm. literature many years ago kind of indicated you're looking somewhere in the vicinity of several years because basically what happened is you have a debate with someone and you introduce some doubt into their worldview. And then they go away, and what do they do next? They go and talk to their trusted source, whether it be the pastor of their church or their really cl close friends who also believe what they do. They say, oh, look, David pointed out to me that X and Y is seems a bit dubious about this view. And their friend or their pastor's response tends to be, oh, Tell David next time you see him, blah, 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 and blah, thus reinforcing that person's initial oh, view and making it absolutely. look as if and, you're the idiot. Yeah, and, and M, I mean, I, I, I mean, what, everything you're saying resonates with me because I grew up believing in young earth creationism. I, I came um, from a fairly, uh, you know, I came from a, a family that um, em, embraced that and taught me that. And that that's fine. I mean, I, I, have, I don't have a lot of resentment about that now but you know i you know i believe till i was about 17 18 
I'm trying to think. Even 19, that, you know, the Earth was 10,000 years old and that dinosaurs and man walked the Earth together. And, yeah, man, like, I, and when I was in youth group um, in church, we would have, like, apologist classes where we would be taught how to um, debate evolutionists evolutionists and um and sort of any sort of secular theory and so i'm just i haven't really actually thought about this until now but how the fuck did i get out of it i it was just someone it was people planting seeds in doubt and me ignoring them for ages and then i think when i went to university and just met a lot of people that didn't have that worldview um it just it was time it was probably a couple of years um before i just sort of realized that that wasn't something i believed anymore but once, you know, it was difficult to let go of because it gives you a, a blueprint for how things operate in the world. And that is a really comforting thing. And to lose that is very disorientating initially, although not as terrible as I think a lot of people think. Uh, but yeah, there was no, at no point when I was in that belief system, did someone walk up to me and I, the instantly the light went on and I went, oh, that's right. Maybe the earth isn't 10,000 years old. It was years of things slowly eroding away and reading a bit wider. And certainly when someone came at me and told me I was stupid for believing that stuff, that just embedded me more deeply because of course they are going to say that because they're, you know, they're not a Christian and they don't know the truth. Godless heathens, I believe is a technical term. Yeah, totally. So it's funny. It's a, there's a lot of similarities. I think there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a very middle-class suburb Devonport in the North Shore of Auckland, <laughs> and had all of the tropes you'd have of someone who was very middle class and white in a white <laughs> suburb, yeah. to the point where it was never explicitly said in the community, but you kind of looked down on Maori because they came from you know a primitive Stone Age style civilization. We basically brought civilization oh, Christ. To, mm. to them, and then I went to uni, and of all things, did anthropology did the archaeology of the Pacific, and over 12 weeks went, these people are amazing, and suddenly had to question everything I had believed about Māoridom and Ao Māori prior to that point. Because just being slowly explained the history of the Pacific, the migration techniques, the navigational technology, the long history, the Lapita civilization, you end up going, I was never taught any of this stuff in school. Why was I never taught how awesome these people are? And that wasn't an overnight uh, road to Damascus style moment. That was just a case of being patiently explained, along with everyone else in the class, this is the history you've never been taught, and going, huh, that's weird. So yeah, there is this kind of weird, weird thing where it can be initially disorienting to lose a a cherished belief or a belief that you just held to be true. But actually the kind of liberty you feel when you come out the other side is also kind of, I know more about the world now. I feel oh, much yeah, better about it, things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, God, I mean, we're, we're two white people and, you know, the more you go through life, the more you become aware, I think, of how all this deeply ingrained perspective that you have just by the fact that you're white and I've been you know I've been I feel like I've been learning a lot in the last even over the last couple of days in the last week because you know Dylan and I wrote this piece about this reddit user who first propagated this idea this sort of the this bullet proof bullet um, point list that eventually led to that 
very racist charged conspiracy theory that went around Facebook. And, you know, there's been some response to that from writers and um, from uh, Maori and Pacific writers and, and just sharing on their Facebook. And just that, you know, because we were very, you know, we were very sympathetic in that we wanted to talk to this person who had, had, I think, not intended for things to go out into the world the way that they did. But the point that's being made is that shit like you are afforded a lot of protection and you're given like a very long plank if you are white in this country uh, to compare when you're not. And I think there's a lot of interesting debate around this in with what we're seeing in conspiracy as well and certainly with Billy TK and his audience and how all that stuff kind of plays out because I think the other thing that we're running into is if, you, you know, you've got to sort of be careful when you're a white guy running around sort of shitting on these theories that you do you don't just in the approach that you take and just the language you're using and also just just being very aware of like who the victim is in this and you know in that conspiracy theory that that spread so widely in New Zealand about the the source of the covid outbreak which was completely false you know the victim um is certainly not a white person and it's easy to sort of lose sight of of all of this stuff sometimes. I, I'm just sort of ranting, but I, I hope I'm making some sort of sense. No, I mean, I, I found Dylan's response to the webworm piece and then journalistic response to it interesting because, as he points out, you don't really get tone in written forms of la- language. It's quite easy to read the in- in- interlocutor as being blasé, and so you end up not realizing actually, you know, there's a lot of tone and nuance which is lost just by making speech into words. And of course, that's one of those things you might only spot after the fact, which kind of resembles his response to I was just putting some speculation on Reddit. I didn't realize how people would re- would read it. And then it's quite interesting to see the same effect also occurring around the reporting of exactly what he did. The realization that, oh, actually, tone once again is not coming through. Yeah, it's super, it, it's super interesting. And I think that yeah, even uh, there's so many questions raised, even when you're covering conspiracy theory, thinking and culture and how you talk about things. And what, what I'm finding really interesting on the newsletter is that, you know, my audience, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who my audience is, because they're not just New Zealanders. It's not like I'm the herald that's writing for a new zealand audience like half the people i'm writing for are in the united states and so i'm i'm trying to think like how can i make this make sense to an american and so i I tend to keep things like very broad and general and when you when i found when we were covering this this topic that was so central to new zealand and i'm sort of writing about it for an audience that isn't necessarily new zealanders it's just a really it's an interesting process in the editorial kind of system and when i say editorial system i mean it's just me um and so yeah finding it's it's interesting when you're writing on the internet and you're writing for an audience that's very broad and i'm loving it but it also comes with certain um, nuances i think that can be lost yeah so what have you learned about the audience for for webworm? How old are they? How diverse are they? Do you think? I mean, I don't have any stats particularly about specifics like that. I mean, I I, I get an idea of geographically where people are from just because of the comments and the kind of feedback I'm getting. And I think that a lot of people came to the newsletter from 
probably my Instagram and Twitter, and a lot of those people came from Dark Tourist and Tickled, which primarily had their audiences in the United States and the UK. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of Americans on there, um, and I think their ages are pretty widespread. I mean, I, I've, I had a couple of, like, grandmothers write to me recently saying, like, thanks for writing some of the stuff because I have no idea what QAnon is and I don't understand this stuff, but... You're, like, you're writing it about it in a way where I can kind of grasp what's going on. And that was really cool to hear. And I think there's like some kids and stuff on there that have signed up for the free newsletter who are, um, I feel like they're sort of like TikTok generation who are coming across some of this conspiracy stuff for the first time uh, in the middle of, you know, amazing dances that they're watching on TikTok. Suddenly they've got people talking about Pizzagate on there. So it's uh it feels diverse and i and i love that like i love that it's a lot of different people and it keeps me on my toes about what i'm writing about as well uh and it makes me think a lot about the kind of community i want to build there because what i like about it is that you know you can write in the comments and i'm finding some of the discussion in there like i'm learning things and i really selfishly i really like that because it's you know it's like oh great i'm i'm getting something from this um that en enriches my life as well which is which is fucking rad. Has there been any pushback by the international audience to stories around Aotearoa New Zealand? No, no, there hasn't been, and that's and that's kind of great. Um, and I'm linking, I've just linked to a couple of um, local pieces as well in a, a recent newsletter, and people, I think, enjoy it. I think as well, New Zealand at the moment is kind of on the world stage with our response to COVID, and so people... You know, it's not just Lord of the Rings and Flight of the Concords. I think people are actively interested in New Zealand. And because of COVID and our response, that kind of ties in so beautifully with some of this conspiracy stuff I'm writing about. We're like this little test case. And so when I start talking about pockets of conspiracy poking, um, poking up here, uh, I think people are sort of fascinated by it. And so it's it's... I feel kind of lucky. I've kind of got like the perfect topic to explore that will appeal super wide, but I can talk about things that are a bit more specific and it's not entirely lost on them. I mean, talking about the New, Ze New Zealand aspect of the COVID-19 conspiracy theories, the thing which fascinates me, and I'm sure it does you as well, is that we've done so well with the initial round of eradication of COVID-19 in the community. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, we had the reappearance of community transmission, which mm. is a big deal here, but compared to what's going on overseas is actually a really, really minor outbreak. And yet so many conspiracy theories about what is happening or what we're not being told appeared overnight as if they'd just been imported from other slightly larger countries and repurposed as weapons against the government in this one. Yeah, and I think um, I think what we're seeing here is it's 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 so funny. What because I was so I was so curious about what was happening in America. But so I'm you know I I love this podcast, the QAnon anonymous podcast, talking about the developments there and seeing it suddenly arrive here was uh surprising and we've got our own spin on things as well um but it's essentially the same kind of talking points but it's just very um unusual to see it rolling out on home turf and there's something quite fascinating about the the two varieties we're seeing here so we're getting the explicit conspiracy theory politics being put forward by people like billy tk jr 
and elements of the new conservatives, where they are explicitly engaging in claims of conspiracy, whether it be cover-ups around COVID-19 or claims that we have the most draconian abortion law in the world. And then the conspiracy dog whistles we're seeing coming out of the bigger political parts parties, mm. from stuff that actors saying to Jerry Brownlee's I'm just asking questions approach to putting oh, forward God. conspiracy theories. Do you think which, oh, which of the two do you think is more dangerous? The explicit conspiracy theory politics or the dog whistles towards it? I think, I think probably the dog whistles because they're going out to a bigger audience. I mean, as popular as the public party is, Billy TK is so extreme, those views are also going to turn a lot of people off. So obviously he has his supporters who are fully red-pilled on this stuff. But also I think a lot of people come along to his stuff and they're just like, oh, God, like this is, this is fucking, this is out there. This is not for me. Whereas when you've got someone like Jerry Brownlee up there who is, I imagine to a lot of people, is respected within that party and he holds a, you know, he's deputy leader, uh, the leader of the party, you know, pats him on the back after he does this stuff. And when someone like that gets up at a press conference and starts putting out these really loose kind of ideas, like, oh, isn't it, isn't it odd that she was at a mask factory? You know, Jacinda was at this mask factory. And then isn't it odd that, um, you know, we've been talking about masks in the last two weeks and, and, and string these th- strings these things together. That stuff that's going to probably more likely to drag in a lot more people into distrusting uh, the government and to sort of have these almost have these conspiratorial ideas without even knowing they're having them. And so I think that dog whistling stuff, I think it's more cynical as well. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still curious, like how much of a grifter Billy TK Jr. is and how much he genuinely believes this stuff. I kind of feel he does genuinely believe it. And at least, I mean, God, I mean, at least he like is backing what he believes as terrible as that is. We, when you've got someone like, Jerry Brownlee up there, who I think doesn't believe that at all, but is still engaging and dog whistling to that audience. I mean, that's a, a that that's awful. Like it's that that I find more troubling. Yeah, I agree. I think the the worry with the current political discourse are people like your Jerry Brownleys, who are either and I'll just be frank, either deeply. St- stupid and thus shouldn't really have (laughs) any political power whatsoever or deeply cynical and going i don't really believe the government's up to anything particularly shady but we're not doing particularly well in the polls at this point in time so maybe if we we just intimate the government is hiding something we can claw back some of those votes that have gone to the minor parties And either option is bad. We don't want idiots in charge because we're seeing what's happening in the US. And we don't Mm. want cynical political leaders in charge who will weaponize a crisis for votes because you don't know what they're going to do in power if they're then going, oh, we can use a crisis to maintain our position. Both options are bad. Well, at least as you point out with Billy TK Jr., I mean, he might be grifting to a certain extent, but he also does seem to be a true believer in at least some of these conspiracy theories and is expressing mm. them as is his right, just that we just don't have to necessarily give that person votes. 
No, and it's highly unlikely he will get into any position of power and he'll vanish and that's great. Whereas someone like Jerry is very much um, has a soapbox. And if, if we're getting into that style of politics, which, you know, someone like Donald Trump, I think, has perfected this in such an amazing way where he can step up to a podium, he can talk to a country in the world, he can spout a lot of utter, you know, provably incorrect things. Uh, and yet that's fine. It's, you know, he is moving at such a pace of information that he can lie and it's kind of fine. Like his voter base will just keep on voting. Um, people won't fact check him. And if even people that do know he's wrong, it's like, what can you do? And I'd hate to see that style of politics sort of, it's always existed, but I'd hate to see that really taking off here. And that's why you and Jerry Brownlee did that little spiel and then you got down and you know journalists sort of hit him up They're like like jerry what are you saying like just spit it out uh and then judith got up there judith collins got up and sort of with this little grin on her face and was like well if you guys ask the right question or whatever she said i'm paraphrasing i was just sitting there going oh fuck like is this where we're at and it's hard to know how to respond as you point out to people like jerry <laughs> yeah. brownlee because i mean you 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 even if you think Billy TK Jr. is absolutely wrong about almost everything, which I do, you can imagine mm. sitting down with him and going, look, let's lay our cards on the table. This is what you believe. This is what I believe. Can we find a way mm. to have a conversation to work out what we should both believe at the end of this conversation? Even though we've already discussed that that virtually never happens. But if someone's mm. insincerely using a conspiracy theory to advance their politics then you can't have those debates with them. Because either they're going to admit, yeah, I don't really believe that, at which point you're going to go, so why did you say it? Or they're just going to prevaricate and find a way to continue to maintain saying those things. They're not going to engage you in honest debate on that topic because their goal is not to change your mind. It's to get like-minded people to support mm. them. And at that point, you're talking about nothing. You know, it's like we're wasting our breath having these conversations. And it's, I, I think that's why I get so wound up about this, because it seems like all of this seems like such a massive waste of time. Whether you're, I mean, whether you are debating Jerry and having this conversation about nothing, as you just discussed, or you're sitting down with Billy TK, putting all your cards on the table. It's like, we're, it's such a fucking waste of time, because we're not talking about anything real. It's... It's it's like we could be debating and talking about, you know, Elon Musk's neural link, this this fucking mad thing he's he's working on that's gonna, you know, interface the human brain with the internet. And I mean that's a real thing that people are working on. I mean, that's something we should be like discussing the ins and outs of. I mean, that's a I mean, that's so much more interesting than this made up stuff that doesn't exist that we're just spending so much time debating like i think that's why i get so frustrated because it's just we're talking about nothing real it's like we it's like it's like the whole world is spending all their time talking about the existence of bigfoot you know and i love bigfoot i love that stuff but it's like it's such a ultimately it's such a waste of time right yeah and i mean you can you i know it's at that particular point in time i feel sympathy for the conspiracy theory that says modern politics is just a distraction to keep us yeah. not looking at what the elites are doing in the background. Because you're right, 
Elon Musk is talking about installing basically brain chips in human beings, which in theory is just going to make it easier to access the internet, but people are actually afraid might might lead to a complete loss of privacy for individual users, the ability to suddenly do hardware hacks on the human brain. There's a whole bunch of issues there that we should be debating at length. And yet we're kind of stuck in the same old political conversations we've been having since time immemorial, as if there's a group of people out there who don't want us to look at what other people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and we should be alarmed. We should be alarmed by that. And it's again like the these conspiracy theories that are not based in any kind of reality are distracting from the fact that there are real conspiracies going on on a on a huge scale and on a a million examples i'm sure on a smaller scale that we should be focusing on and i think you know something um travis view said to me uh who has been following the qanon movement is that sort of for instance, the people following something like Q, what they forget is for all their posting and all their talking, not one Q um, follower has actually saved a child or done anything that's actually real. You know, you look at who outed Jeffrey Epstein uh, and his um, sex trafficking ring. That was a really hardworking journalist um, at a Miami newspaper. You know, you look at who outed um, the huge conspiracy within the Catholic Church to cover up for pedophilic priests and that was a really hard-working um bunch of journalists this isn't hidden they've made movies about it you know they've made dramas about the fact this happened and so you know i just wish we were talking about real things and focusing on real problems not this kind of made-up gunk you know yes i mean there are points in time where i think maybe the ultimate conspiracy theory is the dissemination of major conspiracy theories like this in order to allow political elites to get away with doing much more minor crimes but more systemic crimes in our society. I mean, imagine building an international cabal to go, look, we'll get people like Alex Jones and David Icke to express these ludicrous views of what we're meant to be up to, whilst we engage in selling wars overseas, trading property with one another, and basically taking the resources of third world nations. I mean, it looks really minor compared to what Jones and Icke are saying. We can get away with murder. Yeah, no, that's something, that's a theory I could get behind, you know, sign me up. <laughs> Excellent, I finally found a conspiracy theory to make my fortune, because I've, I've always maintained if I ever wanted to make money from this game, the only way to do it is to find a vaguely plausible conspiracy theory and then start selling it in town halls around the world. I mean, David Icke makes a I mean, he claims not to make much money from his work, but he travels internationally to crowded auditoriums all the time. I oh yeah, the stuff he's... he's the stuff he sells, and it's the same with the Q, the Q stuff, the merchandise. Like they're all grifters, you know. They're all making making a lot more money than probably an epidemic, or certainly a journalist is making off this stuff. <laughs> oh yes, I mean, I mean, and Alex Jones is the perfect example of this grift. Even though he absolutely hates QAnon, 
he sells Q-related merchandise through Infowars.com. I mean, what a grift. You, you promote conspiracy theories, you hate one particular rival conspiracy theory, but you still sell their merch. <laughs> yeah, it's so uh yeah, it's it's so frustrating. I mean, I feel like he's yeah, at least he's someone whose life has sort of come collapsing down around him, which I'm I'm grateful for. Uh but it's it's taken a while. Yeah, yeah, it does seem that his empire is in free fall. I'm a great fan of the podcast Knowledge Fight, which is kind of tracks Alex Jones's broadcast week in, <laughs> week out. And it really does seem as if there's been a complete total shift in Alex Jones in the last few years in that he kind of want old Alex Jones back, the one who wasn't a religious <laughs> yeah. zealot going on about by the grace of God. And you can tell that Nancy Pelosi is, is controlled by a de- demon because her face is too, fl- too flexible. It does seem that deplatforming him from Twitter and Infowars has really reduced his audience down to a very, very core set of Christian conser- conservatives. He's had to pivot his mm. message to even keep them on board. Yeah, yeah, he has, and I mean, I, I yearn for like the wacky old days of Alex Jones as well. Before we got to this point, I mean, I feel like where he crossed over into territory that was just so, just objectively awful was when he was, you know pointing out that certain um, Sandy Hook uh, survivors of crisis actors and, and you know, people involved in that, you know, had legs blown off in the Boston Marathon bombing were crisis actors and, and started, you know, harassing them and sort of dog whistling people onto them. That was, I think, a moment where it's just like, oh, man, like, this isn't fun anymore. Like, this is just awful, awful shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there is something very, very deeply strange about, conspiracy theories on the internet which of course comes back to how we kind of started this conversation between my you say my my balanced approach versus your slightly more strident approach it is interesting in this moment to see what conspiracy theories look like in the here and now and go what is the appropriate response to dealing with conspiracy theories because we know conspiracies occur so some conspiracy mm. theories are going to turn out to be true. But working mm. out how to have that conversation without appearing to endorse some of the really dangerous conspiracy theories we're seeing circulating at this point in time is really difficult. And so I think we need both your approach and my approach working in tandem in these situations. You need a good theoretical academic background for this discussion, but you also need people like you who are actually delving into the minutiae of individual conspiracy theories, talking with the people behind them, trying to work out, so what is motivating these people? Why do they believe these things? And where are these conspiracy theories going? Yeah, thank you. And that means a lot because I've, I've loved your work for a, 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 a long period of time now. So it, it's nice to hear that. And I think you know, I think we need to keep having these discussions. And I think we need to, I don't know how exactly, but we need to start, I mean, it all comes down to education, right? And if we can start, I think, educating kids to think critically and not just shoving a bunch of facts and and sort of knowledge down their, their gullets, but actually, you know, get them, 
you know, give them the tools to to think critically and to analyze things and to look at sources and because we, we've lost that, I think, somewhere. And I look, I don't know anything about education and I'm very naive about this stuff, but it feels to me like we've lost something there and we've got to, you know, you and I have to do our thing talking to, I guess, more sort of adults probably. But I think kids need to be taught critical thinking skills a lot earlier and I feel that's just not happening or we wouldn't be in this mess now. Yeah, I mean, I suppose optimistically, having done a teaching degree, I do think the next generation of digital natives who come through are going to be much better at dealing with this stuff online. Good. I think what we're dealing with now is the fact that we've got a kind of interstitial generation between people like ourselves who actually grew up at just the right point in time where computational technology was becoming mainstream and big. So we actually know quite a bit about how these things work. This is a generation who grew up with them without really being taught how they work and not being taught how to interact with the way the information landscape works. This is a new generation being brought up through schools who are being taught to critically appraise sources, working out when you should trust a, a website and when you shouldn't. And so I do have hope for the future. The problem is there needs to be a future for that hope to be instantiated in. And the worry is in this current mo- moment, we might tear ourselves apart before we ever get there, which is a really depressing note. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are going to kill us. Um, I mean, I'm freaked out by AI. I'm freaked out by global warming. But yeah, also freaked out by the kind of discussions we're having around uh, reality at the moment. And so, yeah, I'm encouraged by what you've just said, but I think you're right. We could very easily tear ourselves apart before we get to that point. So I guess we'll... uh, I guess we'll see. We're living in odd, very odd times, aren't we, Em? We are. As I've pointed out to many colleagues, I may be studying the right thing at the right time, but it would actually be quite nicer to be studying this as more a historical thing of back in the old days when we believed these <laughs> yeah. things. Because it's it's much easier to encapsulate and understand an idea that's distinctly in the past as opposed to something which is evolving around us at high speed, like a coronavirus. Yeah, and shifting and changing, and you're trying to nail it down in real time. And yeah, that's a lot more difficult than uh, the joy of hindsight. Indeed. Now, normally at this particular point in time, we do the, do you have anything to promote? But of course, we've already talked about Webworm. And I'm also aware that you're not really particularly keen about talking about secret projects you're working on in the background, because we've talked about this in, 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 in the past. You like to keep those things under wrap until they're fully formed. So I'll ask mm, a side mm. question. Are there any projects you're not working on at the moment? <laughs> I'm, uh, I am not. I mean, I believe you're still not writing that novel. <laughs> I'm not writing that novel. Um, I'm not uh, making a documentary about Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is like, at the moment, that is what I would love to. I want to be with next to Elon Musk daily filming with him. That's a project I'm not doing that I would love to do. I'm sure somebody is, and I cannot wait to see it. <laughs> Actually, now now I'm think I'm now I'm think, thinking about a reality t- TV show set inside Elon Musk's Hyperloop, 
<laughs> I think it involves car racing. In fact, it's going to be the next Fast and Furious film in the Hyperloop. <laughs> I think we should sell that property. I think you've got something. And the thing is, I'm actually convinced Vin Diesel will do it. <laughs> he would. He would. I mean, we're living in crazy times. Tom Cruise is about to shoot the first uh, thriller action film in space. So um, anything can happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suspect the problem with these Mission Impossible films is they have because they have to keep on topping each other. Space is <laughs> this do. one. What are they going to do for the next one? The first film, literally entirely set on Mars. <laughs> Look, I don't know, but I'm here for all of them. I'm so here for them. Well, thank you, David. That has been an informative, if slightly depressing, uh, com- conversation towards the end. I hope we get to talk again soon. Yeah, that would be great, Em. Thank you, and thanks for the work that you do as well. Thank you. And there you have it. What a nice young man. Such a such a such a pleasant person to talk to. I've not he having is. spoken to him now, myself, but having heard people speak to him, seems like a lovely fella. Well, of course, I've had adventures with David in Prague, and you know, oh yes. what happens in Prague stays. I don't know. Lives in your heart forever. Um, now, I was thinking about this afterwards. Does Is David Farrier now the most famous person we've interviewed? Is David Farrier more famous than David Icke? David Icke has a following, but I think post-Dark Tourist, surely more people know who David Farrier is than know who David Icke is. I think this actually speaks to the fact that there are a variety of different audiences out mm. there in the world. Because, yes, I think for... The common person, David Ferry is much more of a touchstone than David Icke. I think if you believe in alien shape-shifting reptiles, David Icke is much well, more yes. of a yes. touchstone than David Ferry. But they are both called David, mm. which does make me think that maybe a prerequisite for being famous is having the name David in your full name. And I have thus made a mistake yes. by not having any D names in my full full name at all no no I'm, I'm not even called david a little bit so maybe we've maybe we've touched on it maybe, maybe that's the reason why we're not famous huh all becomes clear so we should basically rename ourselves and rename this podcast to the david's guide to the conspiracy yes i think so but anyway that can come for next week um so was that what we heard was that basically the whole thing no no Juicy little tidbits you had to cut out for defamatory reasons, or... No, I mean, I did think about cutting out the bit where I said, I think Jerry Brownlee's basically an idiot. And I went, no, no, I'm willing to stand by that particular bit of of, of biting political commentary. No, that was, apart from, you know, the usual guff of setting up the sound at the beginning, and then a chat at the end where we promised we would meet up when we're both in Auckland at the same time again, you heard the full text of the interview. Jolly good. And what an interview it was. Um, interesting, I, I, I wasn't aware that he's been talking to Joe Yuskinski as well. I assume that's going to be fodder for an Some, upcoming... Someone might something. have suggested he should talk to him, I'm just well, saying. Well, yes, I, I, I was assuming you'd have done the introductions, but... Um, uh, and yeah, the, the the talk you had about sort of the attitudes towards it and possibly did, were you thinking on the spot with the idea that maybe um, 
the the polling is less than representative for the reasons that polling can be less than representative these days, what with landline phones and internet and so on and so on. Is, is, is that a... Is that something that occurred to you at the time, or is that something that people have been wondering for a while? Well, I think there's this weird tension between the work that Joe does, which really does seem to indicate that belief in conspiracy theories is not growing. It doesn't appear to be diminishing at the mo moment, but it's remained remarkably stable, versus the fact that we're having QAnon rallies in the US now. And we're certainly seeing enough town hall meetings going on here to indicate that the New Zealand Public Party has more support than we previously thought. So there is a worry that maybe the mechanisms by which we are doing polling are not quite capturing people in the same way that election polling before elections doesn't seem to be capturing how people vote on, on, on the day. Now, there are also other related issues. Turned out people lie to people who are taking surveys. So it also turns out that people basically don't tell you the truth when they're being polled. So there's a kind of, and I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going, going, going to use a term the right use pejoratively all the time. There is a kind of virtue signaling that goes on with polling, particularly around who are you going to vote for. Even though you don't know the person on the other end of the phone, you often do implicitly want to please them. So you'll tell them the kind of answer that you would tell to any stranger as opposed to the answer you would tell to a friend. So there are all kinds of worries about polling going on there. And so, yes, I do worry that maybe either we're not polling properly, or maybe the way we're polling lags behind what people believe. And that's why we're going to have an interview with Joe Yusinski at some point in the near future, where I will put the hard questions to him, and he'll probably point out to me that actually polling is very robust, and the kind of issues we have with election polling do not apply to the kind of pollings he does for the Pew Research Center. Ah, well, I look forward to that then. Um, and yeah, the, the, the well, stuff... There's going to be egg on my face, I can tell you that now. Mm. But I only mean that uh, figuratively. Obviously, yes. Um, and then sort of the area went into where you you didn't quite you didn't quite word it as um, having sort of a responsibility around these things, but it seemed like you were sort of thinking around the effect that your work and David's work has, and whether it's enough to simply have an academic interest at the moment. Um, I mean, like, in the past when we've talked about things, you've talked about sort of in terms of um, sort of social goods that might, that, that might come out of this sort of line of research being um, people should take conspiracy theories a bit more seriously because then that will prevent authorities from being able to waive stuff away by simply saying, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. But um, do, do you find that things are going in the other direction a little bit now, that conspiracy theories do seem to be a little bit more um, in, in, in mainstream might not be the right word, but sort of out there in society, and the conspiracy theories themselves seem to be a bit damaging? Do you think there's some sort of a, 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 a sort of a social angle, if not a social responsibility, that, that your sort of research can have these days? I mean, it is interesting doing conspiracy theory in the age of COVID-19, where even if you aren't convinced many people believe in COVID-19 conspiracy theories, you can still be 
convinced that the idea that because some people believe them, they change their behaviours, so they are less likely to wear masks, they're less likely to engage in social distancing, they're less likely to wash their hands properly, all of whisk, all of whisk, all of whisk, that's what I'm going to say, all of which are the kind of behaviours which increase the chance of transmission of COVID-19 from one person to another, especially given that many people are asymptomatic for periods of time whilst actually having the virus. And so the worry is we need to be careful about the way we talk about these conspiracy theories, particularly in media narratives about these conspiracy theories, because we certainly don't want to be amplifying the threat to make people concerned about things that actually might be minor beliefs. And we also don't want to introduce people to these theories if they're primed to believe them, but they haven't heard them. So I think there is something quite interesting about the tension about how we talk about these things. Now, I've always maintained that if we want to treat conspiracy theories seriously and investigate them, that doesn't necessitate we have to do that in a public forum. So my community of inquiry model of dealing with the investigation of conspiracy theories has that you could build private communities that take a conspiracy theory seriously, engage in a rigorous investigation, as long as the products of that investigation are made public and are made public in a really transparent manner. So you have your report, you produce the report, you give the background to the report and make that public, but you don't tell people you're investigating it until you're actually finished with the investigation. So there are ways around talking about this stuff. But yeah, because I've been talking with the media an awful lot over the last week or so about COVID-19 conspiracy theories, one of the things which keeps coming out from that is the question, how many people do you think believe in these theories? And that always brings me back to the, we're not entirely sure, we don't think it's as many people as maybe the media makes it out to be. And thus some of us are concerned that maybe the media are blowing the problem out of proportion which might introduce people to the conspiracy theories or make people overly concerned about something which may not be as big of a threat that people think it is. Yeah, you wonder if there could be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the media says, hey, this is a big deal, and because they're saying that, it becomes a big deal because everybody starts to believe them. And there's a kind of related issue when it comes to polls before elections, which is why historically Mm. people like Winston Peters leader of New Zealand first, has always maintained there should be no polls during the election period, which is the concern that people like to vote for winners. So if people want to vote for winners, they'll see that one party is doing really well in the polls. And if that effect is real, then people end up going, well, I was going to vote for National, but I don't see the point about voting for a loser. I'm going to vote Labour instead, which means the polls may be influencing the vote rather than representing where that vote is meant to go. Mm. Anyway, um, we should probably stop talking because we've, that was a decent length interview and it's, it's about, about time to get, uh, send this episode on its way. But now, like we said, this would normally be when we would have a news episode uh, but obviously we had the much more interesting and enlightening interview with David Farrier instead. But 
we figured what we will do is have news in the Patreon episode, like we usually do each week, and then maybe sort of sometime, a little, so the patrons will get that straight away, and then maybe a little bit later, we'll release that as uh, next week's episode, which will be the retroactive news episode for August, I think. And what's that going to be like particularly confusing for patrons is that patrons will hear the patron bonus episode before they hear this episode, or at least if they're keeping up to date with things, they'll get the patron bonus episode and listen to it before the interview with David Farrier occurs. So it's got really, really timey-wimey for mm. patrons of the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Mm. But if you are a patron to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, you're probably fully capable of dealing with this weird sort of paradoxical time-manipulating nature because, frankly, you're just better and smarter and, and sweeter smelling um, than everybody else on the planet. And We've always prettier. Said that. Mm. So much prettier. Yes. Um, and if you'd like to be uh, a patron of the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy and have your sense of time manipulated in these weird, seductive ways, uh, you could do that by going to patreon.com and uh, looking for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Or you could even go to conspiracism.podbean.com, which is the site where this is podcast is officially sort of hosted and do their patronage system. But frankly, you're probably better going with Patreon because that's what everyone does. It's what all the cool kids do. You should do that. Let's follow the pair pressure go with the organization which has really bad union rules. Mm, mm. I have no idea about what Podbean's union rules are like. One of the great things about being an underdog in this fight is that sometimes people don't talk about your bad labor practices. Precisely. Um, speaking of bad labor practices, I have no segue for that. It's the end of the episode. Uh, and we usually signal the end of the episode by me saying goodbye... And my saying, it's goodbye from David, David, and David. And a good David to you all. David! You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R.X. Dentit, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.